www.thepeopleshow.org. Type the author's name and the word book in the search bar at the top of the page. Up next on Book TV's Afterwards, journalist Beth Macy reports on the opioid crisis in America. She's interviewed by Democratic Congressman Gerald Connolly of Virginia. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. So, Beth Macy, I gotta say, your book, Dope Sick, was a book I could not put down, but I also couldn't pick up. It is such <laughs> a gripping, but also, frankly, depressing story uh, about this crisis, this opioid crisis uh, that has uh, taken hold starting in rural America, and uh, you do such a great job of telling the story. Um, maybe I could uh, begin by asking you, why the title Dope Sick? What does Dope Sick mean? Yeah, it's kind of an in-your-face title. And as you just said, the book is kind of in-your-face. It's um, We need a reality check on how bad this issue has gotten that I think a lot of our leaders and a lot of people in our country still don't have. But Dope Sick is a word that I heard over and over from users. And it is the word they use to describe of the very painful withdrawal um, when they can't get um, the opioids that they are now addicted to. So it's like the worst flu times 100. It's diarrhea, vomiting, nausea, restless leg. And as somebody early in the book says from the coal field, she says, at the end of your journey, you're not doing drugs to get high. You're just doing it not to be dope sick. Not to and get... And I felt like that was an important concept, yeah. you know, that people don't get. yeah. So it's not only to get that high, it's also to try to not get sick in an ironic way. Yeah, and right, right. So, so you uh, started out this journey as a reporter in the Roanoke area in Virginia. Mm-hmm. And you, you discovered that there was a problem in Appalachia, uh, and I think you start out kind of covering Henry and Lee counties in particular in rural Virginia, is that correct? Yeah, I actually didn't, uh, I didn't cover the Oxycontin epidemic when it first bubbled up in the late 90s. That was uh, the purview of our courts and police reporters at the time. But when I wrote Factory Man, uh, which I you know, finished up around 2013, I w which is a book about the aftermath of globalization in Henry County and Martinsville and really all distressed communities, kind of what happens to a community when the jobs go away, I started to hear from policemen and other sources that so much of the drug crime, so much of the crime in their communities was drug-fueled, mostly by methamphetamines and heroin. And I thought, heroin, like heroin in rural areas? Uh, how is that happening? And uh, sure enough, it was. And I didn't understand what, at the time how it had been, how heroin and Oxycontin and other opioid pills were connected. I didn't understand that they were chemical cousins and that if people were initially addicted to prescribed opioids, whether it be Oxycontin or Percocet or Dilaudid, or whatever, once they're addicted and they get cut off, they get dope sick and that fuels them to have to get more. And when the pills got expensive and hard to get, 
around the time OxyContin was reformulated in 2010 and in the early teens, um, drug cartels started bringing heroin in, knowing that the fear of becoming dope sick portended one hell of a business model. Yeah. And setting the stage, because like you, I think a lot of Americans would be surprised even now to learn, learn that uh, there was a, an, a, a, an opioid and heroin crisis in rural America. And the counties, for example, you profile in the early parts of your book, uh, you know, not so long ago, there was poverty uh, and economic stress, but these were tight-knit communities with strong value systems. Uh, they cared about their families. Uh, they left their doors unlocked because crime was so low. And that's all... That's exactly right. And that's all revolutionized today for the worse because, frankly, of this drug crisis. Right. Dr. Van Zee, who's one of my people that I profile in the right. early part of the book, he was the, first, he was the first doctor from Lee County to pick up the phone and call Purdue and say, I know in your information here it says your drug isn't, quote, addictive or addiction is, quote, exquisitely rare, uh, but we've got kids that I babysat, uh, that I immunized as babies, uh, ODing in our high school library. This this is a huge addiction problem. And before OxyContin came out, he said he had one or two or maybe three drug-dependent cases a year. And now, all, you know, almost his entire caseload, there's no one in those communities that hasn't been affected right. by this epidemic. And, and I want to come back to Dr. Art Van Zee, whom you profiled, because he was an early uh, warning uh, prophet, in a sense, on what was happening. Yes in terms of the prescription drug problem. But if I may just set the scene for what's happening in rural America, one of the things that really struck me um, uh, on page 125 of your book, but I, I, this, this is extraordinary if I may read these three paragraphs and get you to comment, but you say if OxyContin was the new moonshine in rural America, disability was the new factory work. By 2016, for every unemployed American man between the ages of 22 and 55, an additional three were neither working nor looking for work. Having dropped out of the workforce entirely, they had numerically vanished from the kind of monthly jobs report touted by politicians and reporters. Many turned up instead in disability statistics, which were largely ignored in headline-grabbing economic reports. Disability claims doubled from 1996 to 2015. The federal government spent an estimated $192 billion on disability payments in 2017 alone, more than the combined total for food stamps, welfare, housing subsidies, and unemployment assistance combined. That is extraordinary uh, in terms of what happened. Yes. The bottom fell out for a lot of uh, white working men, especially, and women. And that is sort of the precursor for why there was a receptivity to this drug crisis, uh, I think, as you lay it out. You want to comment? Yeah, I mean, I, I describe it to moonshine. It became a side hustle. If you, if you lost your job and you, your unemployment had run out, you could get your doctor to write you a prescription for OxyContin, and then you could take half and sell half to your neighbor who was in the throes of dope sickness, right, and needed to get that drug. And it became this um, 
this way for people to pay their bills as well as to sort of treat their own psychic pain. Um, there's a story in the book early on where somebody asks a kid in high school what he wants to be when he grows up, and he says, a drawer. And the teacher says, oh, you want to be an artist? He says, no, I want to be a drawer, somebody who draws disability. Because yeah. that was all he could envision for himself because that's what he saw his parents and grandparents doing. Sure. I mean, just if you haven't visited rural America, uh, it, it's shocking. I mean, even the little towns I grew up in in Ohio, which were just farming towns, basically, with, with some factories. The factories are gone. And, um, you know, I was home vis recently visiting and uh, taking my nephews out for hot dogs. And we were going to go to the park across the street. And I said, OK, let's go. And they said, no, let's drive. I said, why? We can, it's right there. And they said, Aunt Beth, I don't want to step on heroin needles. Wow. And it just shocks me, yeah. even though I've written this book. Right. It still shocks so, me. So one of the people you profile early in the book is Dr. Art Benzie. And he, mm -hmm. he, based on his own experience in your book, he, he's early aware of, of the fact that um, opioids like OxyContin are being overprescribed and are highly addictive and it's not being reported properly. And he also is aware or becomes aware of the fact that one pharmaceutical company, uh, Purdue Pharma, is pushing these prescriptions under the, under the uh, uh, argument that you know, the fifth vital sign ought to be pain thresholds. We, ought to, we physicians need to be conscious of leaving our patients in no pain, and I got the perfect way for you, doctor, to handle that. Mm -hmm. and, and he becomes alarmed by the practices of uh, this pharmaceutical company. And tell us a little bit about that story and how that turned out. Well, he starts writing them letters um, saying, you know, what I said before, that we've got people overdosing. We've got crime on a scale I've never seen in this community where I've been practicing for decades. And uh, you need to take this drug off the market and reformulate it to be abuse resistant the way Talwin had done years earlier and with, with good success. And they wouldn't do it. And he actually wrote them a letter in early 2000 that I cite saying, my fear is that these dress, distressed communities, which now have like rising drug crime and you know even murders on a scale they had never had before, are, the, are sentinel areas for this epidemic, much the way San Francisco and New York were for HIV. And you think about that, he was so prescient and when I met him for the first time in 2016, he said of that letter, he said, you know, I knew it when, when it was just a bunch of poor people in the mountains dying, nobody would take us seriously. I thought when the epidemic hit the cities and suburbs, uh, then government would take it seriously. And he says, of course, I was absolutely wrong. And um, he's just stunned that we've, we've had this crisis now for two decades. And... Nothing has been done to turn the numbers down. Beth, uh, can you just uh, refresh our memory of the growth of this crisis? Sure. What, what are the numbers in terms of the growth so of the addicted population and the overdose deaths? Yeah, 72,000 uh, Americans last year died of drug overdose. Uh, it was uh, up about 10% from the year before. 
Uh, Don Burke out of Pittsburgh has looked at uh, kind of drug deaths going back to 1979. He says we've lost 300,000 Americans to drug overdose in the last 15, and projections are that we will lose that many in just the next five. So that shows you how, how, how high that curve is and how fast it's going up. There is some good news, though. Uh, in the last year numbers from the CDC, the 72,000, we started to see slight decreases in three states in New England, which are Vermont, um, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island. And so we know they're doing some innovative things that work. Mm -hmm. And I just, we're not doing them enough to match the scale of uh, what, what, the, what the problem is. I, yeah, and I want to, I sort of want to almost end on that note uh, toward the end of this sure. interview, if I can. But I just wanted to get the scope. I mean, let's go back to those numbers. Yeah. We're talking about extraordinary numbers. Uh, I mean, uh, 72,000 people dying last year of overdose. Uh, you know, that's more than died in the entirety of the Vietnam War every year. And, uh, and I think, as you point out in the book, it's, you know, it, it's accelerating. Or to pro it's projected to accelerate over the next five years. Uh, where potentially yeah. another 300,000 people will die of opioid that's in the, Yeah, that's in the next five. And in yeah. the next decade, they're saying 650, which would be the equivalent of the entire state of Vermont. Yeah, and, and that would be the equivalent of, uh, of the entire number of deaths in the American Civil War over a four-year period. Uh, just uh, the numbers are mind-boggling. Tell us a little bit about, so, so this miracle drug, Oxycontin, and it's not the only culprit in your story, but we kind of start there. Uh, it has enormous uh, positive powers to put out the, the, you know, the, the flame of pain. So somebody in acute pain, that pill really can work. But it's also discovered, is it not, that it is highly addictive, which is denied by the pharmaceutical company, Purdue, but all of the data in front of, say, doctors like Art Van Z is otherwise, that we, we're not only seeing addictive patients, we're actually seeing overdose deaths uh, that are being right. kind of discounted by this pharmaceutical company. What, can you talk right. a little bit FDA, about the potency? FDA, sure, well the FDA allowed them to make this squishy claim that because of its time release mechanism, that Oxycontin uh, first of all, it was a, a higher milligram than, than, than its competitors that were immediate release. And, but, and the, the FDA allowed them to say that because of the brand new time release mechanism, this very high milligram dosage drug was supposed to bleed out over 12 hours and that, and that would give people in severe pain the, the miracle of uninterrupted sleep, right? You, that's a good thing. But what people, quickly learned how to do was to do an end run around that time release mechanism and they would put it in their mouth uh, get it soft and then wipe off the coating which had the time release mechanism on their shirt sleeves and then either crush crush it and either snort it or, and inject it getting the full rush in right one away bump. yeah so right away and uh, there's a discrepancy on when Purdue knew that that was being done um, they had said all along that it was, they didn't know until 2000. You know, people like Van Z were telling them they were seeing overdoses. Um, and then a new Justice Department um, set of documents that the New York Times reported last summer showed that they knew much earlier than that. It took me about a half an hour to find the policeman 
who first saw it being diverted on the streets in the late 90s, he said you could walk around town and see people with orange and green stains on their shirts from where they had wiped the coating off. Yeah. And, I mean, it was clear to the policemen and to the pharmacists whose, the pharmacists whose pharmacies were being broken into. I mean, it was clear to everyone there. But, um, you know, I would love to have some sort of accounting for what the executives of the company knew and when they knew it. So, Beth, there were also some things the company was asked to do and could have done in terms of reducing the potency of the drug itself and uh, attaching, a, I think it's called an antagonist drug, to the OxyContin that would make it either not addictive or a lot less addictive. Is that correct? And they chose not to do that. Right. Right. And Van Z and some of the early parents who lost children to OxyContin overdose were begging them to do that. They were, you know, Barbara Van Royen out of California who lost her son after one Oxy, OxyContin pill. Um, she begged them to make it um, only for use with severe pain. She said, I would never want to take it off the market entirely. It, of course, is a great drug for end of life, severe pain, cancer pain. But um, what they had done in the, between the mid to late uh, mid and late 90s was they had flipped the narrative. They were saying it was now safe for moderate pain so that anybody with back pain, osteoarthritis, even TMJ, which is jaw pain, um, that now this drug was safe to use for these conditions. And so that you went from 1996 when the drug was introduced, opioids were largely uh, only prescribed by cancer physicians, oncologists. And by five years later, they had won that narrative battle. They had convinced people that opioids were safe for moderate pain. And that's really flipping the narrative was really what seeded the opioid crisis that we're in now. And, and the pharmaceutical company, Purdue, claimed uh, that only 1% of the people who used OxyContin would ever get addicted. Uh, what was wrong with that citation, Beth? And what is the real number? <laughs> well, the, yeah, they claimed less than 1%. Addiction was exquisitely rare. Uh, they came up with this term called pseudo-addiction, where if, if they said doctors, if, if somebody who comes to your office and they seem like they're in the throes of addiction, uh, really they're just being undertreated. So the cure for that is um, more OxyContin. And um, they you know, hired an army of reps to go out and um, using old data, including a 1980 letter to the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, um, they sort of ballyhooed this old, out-of-date data that didn't apply to outpatient settings, and, and, to, and then just had their reps repeat it and repeat it until this uncertainty is believed to abuse. They had, they had, the FDA had allowed them to say that the time-release mechanism made the drug, uh, they believed it abused uh, the, the risk of uh, liability of, of abuse and addiction. And then the reps repeated it until it was like an old-fashioned game of telephone gone terribly awry, and it was repeated as a certainty. And you just saw this happening over the course. And, you know, some people now think you can get addicted after taking opioids for, for just five days. And, and uh, the addiction rate can go as high as, I think, 56%? Yeah, some studies have said that. Uh, some studies are lower. I mean, the science is unclear on right. this, but, but clearly it, it's a lot more than less than 1%. Right. 
Well, and, and to, I think your book points out too, Beth, that that 1% was simply a passing reference. It was not based on an empirical study of any kind. And yet they cited no. it They cited it as gospel truth uh, to the, well, cost lives, frankly, relying on that. Yeah, and the authors of that, it was just a letter to the editor. It yeah. wasn't, a, a, you know, a study. And, and the authors didn't mean for it to be repeated like that. So, so they use it as a promotional thing. They're sending their marketers uh, into the doctor's offices and clinics of rural areas. They're targeting rural areas initially, and they're citing that misleading 1%, uh, even though the evidence starts to mount pretty quickly that actually it's highly addictive, very potent, uh, and, uh, and uh, it's being sold on the street very rapidly because of its potency and, uh, and the kind of high that users can get. Is that correct? Right. That's right. And they paid doctors, they paid 5,000 doctors, pharmacists, and nurses to become paid speakers. So at the time, Dr. Art was seeing, you know, kids ODing in the library. Some of his colleagues were being sent off to places like Boca Raton and Arizona and Florida resorts where they were becoming paid speakers for OxyContin. So, I mean... So it it's it sort of... Uh, they co-opt the system, the medical system, uh, and they actually recruit doctors... Uh, to become Purdue marketers for their product. Yep, yep. And so a lot of people then have a vested interest in kind of overlooking what's in front of them in terms of the crisis that's brewing in their communities. Right, right. And, and yeah, just the, I have a chapter called Swag and Dash. I mean, they would right. find out what doctors liked. If you were a doctor that you were into Cuban cigars, they would show up with, uh, here's a bunch of Cuban cigars, the very best ones, and just in exchange for, you know, 10 minutes of our time to tell you about this new wonder drug. And, of course, we know from studies that doctors are twice as more likely to uh, prescribe these drugs when um, they've been exposed to that kind of um, uh, uh, behavior. And, you know, the free lunches and all that. A lot of the big gifts, have a lot of that has stopped, but I'm told the doctors are still, you know, allowing reps to come in with lunches and things like that. And, I mean, in journalism, we're not allowed to accept a gift of uh, over $25. When I worked at newspapers, if somebody liked an article you wrote about them and sent you a bunch of flowers the next day, we had to give them to the domestic violence shelter. I mean, how could doctors not have known that that was wrong to take all these right. gifts and these free trips. But, it, uh, but it, also it at some boggles. point, but also at some point, uh, even if you were initially, you know, seduced by that, when you start to see the evidence that your patients are getting very addicted, very sick and dying, presumably, yeah. you might want to rethink the relationship you've got with Purdue Pharmaceutical. Now, Purdue has sued multiple times and, and wins every lawsuit until it comes up against a, a, a Virginia U.S. attorney uh, whose name is Brownlee. Tell us a little bit about mm -hmm. that, because that's kind of a critical moment in forcing Purdue's behavior to change a little bit. Uh, prior to that time, they'd been in denial and they were pretty aggressive about, uh, mm -hmm. about their denial. 
Mm -hmm. So John Brownlee is this sort of young, brash U.S. attorney working out of the Roanoke office, and he's seeing his caseload become, you know, increasingly overtaken by uh, OxyContin-related uh, crime. And they start investigating the company. I think it was around '02, and um, the company brings in Rudy Giuliani to sort of try to thwart the investigation. And Brownlee, to his just, credit, just, didn't just let to that be, happen. Just to be clear, they hire a former U.S. attorney and mayor of New York, Rudy Giuliani, to defend their practices uh, and defend the drug company itself. And the U.S. attorney... Right after 9-11, right he's 9 just been made right. man of the year. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Some of and us said, are not you know, surprised. If you trust him... Right. They said, if you can trust him, you can trust us because right. he works for us, you know. And, you know, right after he was Time's man of the year... Um, and um, and there's some intimidation that happens. Brownlee has to meet with him, and you know he's much older, and he's this famous person. And but anyways, these two U.S. Uh, assistant U.S. attorneys working out of tiny Abington, which is kind of near the coal fields where a lot of this uh, abuse is going on, uh, they really take it on. And the government amasses hundreds of boxes, charts, data. They the people, the lawyers who have sued uh, Purdue and lost have like funneled all this data and, and case information, depositions, boxes and boxes of stuff. And these two basically government lawyers working out of this tiny Abington office puts together this very, very compelling case. And at the last minute, uh, Giuliani sort of orchestrates uh, this plea deal and the holding company, Purdue Frederick, is basically uh, admits that it's criminally misbanded the drug uh, for a felony charge, one felony charge, and the top three executives um, receive a misdemeanor version of that charge. Uh, but because it's Purdue Frederick and not Purdue Pharma, it's Purdue Frederick that is then banned from doing business with the government programs like Medicaid, Medicare, TRICARE, and Purdue Pharma can continue selling OxyContin uh, and it does. Sales increase after 07. None of those executives went to jail. So this is another important uh, moment in the epidemic when it could have, you know, that if people would have gone to jail, uh, that would have had a chilling effect. And, you know, the prosecutors that work on it now, they said, yeah, we were hoping that would let people know that this was uh, a, a really uh, bad thing that's happening and we should turn this around. But but that didn't happen. The sales continued yeah. unabated. In fact, they went up. One of the things that struck me in the book, too, uh, Beth, was sort of the chemical changes that go on in a person's body and brain uh, with this addiction. And those chemical changes create a craving that is very hard to describe because most cravings for most human beings don't begin to rival this craving. This craving gets parents to frankly uh, no longer care for their children. This craving uh, totally disrupts and destroys normal relationships. It, it, it seems to destroy the barrier between right and wrong that normally the people you describe in this book of course possess in large measure. Uh, and, and because of that, we see heroin enter the picture. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Why, why would somebody who has an opioid addiction suddenly also turn to heroin? What's the connection? Mm -hmm. 
So when the pills get hard to get, Purdue finally reformulates the drug in 2010, uh, 14 years after, you know, Vanzi and others first wanted them to, uh, 14 years after it was first introduced. Uh, the pills get harder to get. Hydrocodone gets upscheduled. Um, and the drug cartels start bringing heroin in because they know that they're chemical cousins. And uh, the fear of dope sickness for all the people who are already ensnared in this portends one hell of a business model, right? Like, we're going to be able to sell this drug. We can bring this in all day long through various measures. And so you see people like the former cheerleader, the former football star, people who have started kind of recreationally using the drugs or they had an injury on the football field or they had a case of bronchitis and were overprescribed cough syrup with codeine and then hydrocodone for sore throat pain. You see them getting ensnared in this and going from the pills. The pills get hard to get. They get more expensive. They get hooked up with dealers and then they themselves start becoming dealers because they're dealing, you know, they become, they're sort of middlemanning as they call it to support their own habit. And then they recruit new users because that's the way they can get their drugs. And it's just almost has this just astonishing uh, exponential effect. And, and, and part of it goes back to this craving, doesn't it? I mean, like you talk about my constituent, yes. Don Flatter, Flattery in this book, who lost his son. Um, his son yes, had an you know, a athletic accident, was put on opioids and developed an addiction. And when he was in rehab, when he couldn't get the pills, heroin was readily available because it was more available and it was cheaper. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's another reason why it's such an easy substitute. As you said, they're chemical cousins, but it's also actually more readily available and more affordable uh, to maintain that craving, that high uh, that they developed on opioids. Um, right. And, and then, could you describe a little bit, then there's fentanyl. So as if the opioid crisis isn't bad enough, and the heroin flooding markets uh, that were uh, sort of advanced by opioids, then there's a synthetic drug called fentanyl that's introduced to the market and often laced with heroin and it's, it's, a, it's a bad, bad actor. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. It's a fentanyl is a synthetic, synthetic analog, uh, and it's 50 times stronger than heroin. There's also, you've heard of carfentanil. That's an elephant sedative. It's 100 times uh, stronger. And uh, so just a little bit of that introduced into the heroin, they call cutting the heroin with these synthetic analogs, makes it very, very dangerous. And these people who are doing the cutting and the mixing are not chemists, you know, they're drug dealers and, and the people that work for them. And so it's easy for it to get, uh, you know, a batch, a bad batch to get out. And I first started seeing this in my community of Roanoke in June 2015 or so when fentanyl started entering the supply and it was you know it was catastrophic at the time we had the highest uh we had the highest rate in the state fentanyl is uh, really dangerous and i was struck you make a reference to a police seizure uh page uh, 301 of your book you talk about uh, an august 2017 police seizure of 4.4 pounds of fentanyl not tons yeah. pounds and then you say that's enough for one million fatal overdoses. 
Yeah. That's an extraordinary and, fact. And people are ordering it off the dark net, you know, from Hong Kong and China. So uh, one of the things I'm happy about with the new opioid bill in Congress now is that there's money to be screening that uh, coming in in the U.S. Postal Service. I mean, that seems like low-hanging fruit. Let's be screening our mail for this if sure. we know that it's coming in. There's another story in the book about the catch a kid at Virginia Western Community College selling Xanax, but it's actually pressed fentanyl. I mean, think of, uh, they caught him with like 700 pills selling them in the parking lot. Think about if that had gotten out there. I mean, you can, it, 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 it's shocking how easy it is for people to get this. And, the, and it's easy to smuggle and um, it just makes everything so much more dangerous. That's why you're seeing most of the, Increases in deaths or uh, overdose deaths are being fueled by fentanyl now. So let's talk a little bit about, okay, so we've got an opioid crisis. We've got a heroin crisis. Now we have a fentanyl crisis. Uh, we have soaring addiction rates starting in a, a large part of rural America, but now spreading to the suburbs and certainly the cities. Uh, we're seeing skyrocketing rates, not only of addiction, but of overdose deaths. Uh, at, so let's talk about treatment. Uh, mm -hmm. Because one of the things that comes clear in your book is, A, it's very hard to get somebody to agree to treatment. B, it's hard to get them in because of long waiting lists. But C, it's prohibitively expensive. And then finally, D, it isn't very efficacious. It doesn't work very well. Yeah. Could you talk about that? Because the choices for desperate loved ones who want to help somebody with an addiction in their family or friend are actually very limited and not very promising. Mm -mm. No, I saw family after family, like some mortgaging their houses or borrowing from their grandparents to spend $30,000 to get a kid to an abstinence-only rehab facility. And it was actually not the right kind of treatment for, for opioid use disorder. Study after study shows that the most efficacious treatment is medication-assisted treatment. And that's uh, offered usually in an outpatient setting uh, with counseling, and it cuts uh, overdose deaths and relapse by 50 to 60% compared to abstinence, which is more like 10%. Um, so I saw a lot of activity around, a lot of Herculean effort to get uh, young adults sent off to rehabs, and then I would watch them sort of bomb out of that and then relapse. And if they run into fentanyl or carfentanyl, they die. I mean, there were people in my book who died before I had a chance to type up my interview notes. Yeah, I mean, some of the stories you were, people had been trying to get some, an, someone who's addicted into a rehab treatment facility and, and they'd finally been accepted and they died the day before. Right, that was, in, in that case, I think you're talking about the story of Joey Gilbert, yeah. beautiful. 27-year-old girl who had been doing fine on Suboxone, which the med is the medication-assisted treatment, buprenorphine, um, and, and in order to get to this face-based rehab, because she herself believed that that was the best way for her to be clean because of the stigma against people who are on MAT. A lot of people in the 12-step community believe that's just uh, substituting one drug for another. Um, you know, abstinence worked for them. With alcoholism, why can't it work? With, with this drug, but it's different. And so you see Joey uh, 
wanting so badly to get clean uh, that she starts cutting her Suboxone pills in half because the rehab center that they've lined up for her is uh, faith-based and doesn't permit any drugs at all, not even um, any medications. And she relapses while she's trying so hard to get there because that, in her mind, uh, that's the only way she's going to be well. And then she relapses and, and dies. And, I mean, just a tragedy for her and her beautiful family that tried so hard to get her help, was so worn out by some of her behavior. And yet still, I still see them at community meeting after community meeting telling the story that, telling the fact that if Joey had had a way forward for continuing her MAT, for having, uh, you know, back then Virginia hadn't yet approved the Medicaid expansion, uh, that they believe she'd be alive today. So... uh, Exploring that just a little bit more, um, a lot of people look at the AA model, which is you go cold turkey. You give it up. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're not on any kind of substitute for alcohol, and there's a 12-step program to get you sober. Uh, and, And for a lot of people, that therapeutic intervention works. And so we have rehab uh, centers that crop up, not always regulated or certified, I might add, um, and that's a problem too, but uh, who have a philosophy that if you're on any kind of drug, including a substitute drug that is uh, designed to help you come down off the addiction, uh, that is a bad thing from their point of view philosophically and as I recall in your book, about two-thirds of all rehab centers refuse to accept you as a patient if you're on any kind of drug. That's right. And only 3% allow all three kinds of maintenance drugs, which are buprenorphine, methadone, and Vivitrol or naltrexone. And uh, there's just a huge bias against MAT. And MAT being every- medical world- assistant, assisted treatment. I'm sorry. That's right. When the World Health Organization, NIDA, the National Institutes for Drug Abuse, uh, the CDC all concur that uh, MAT is the best treatment for opioid use disorder. My uh, constituent, uh, Don Flattery, who lost his son, certainly uh, would hold uh, that philosophy as, as one of the reasons his son died. Because going cold turkey was simply physically not possible given the enormous power of the addiction and he was therefore very susceptible to the heroin substitute. Right. And I I see that play out over and over in my book, not only with Kevin Flattery, but uh, with with Tess Henry. And I'm carrying a locket right now, wearing a locket uh, with her picture in it that her mother gave me after her death. And she didn't die of an overdose. We sort of thought we would get a call one day saying that uh, she had died of an overdose. But she died uh, because lacking her access to MAT, her, her, uh, some of family members who w- didn't believe in it, and nor did Tess herself because she had abused it before. She went off to an abstinence-only treatment center in Las Vegas. And then when she um, relapsed and failed out of that, she was living homeless and on the streets. Uh, working amid uh, prostitution and drug gangs, and she ended up murdered. Her body was discovered in a dumpster on Christmas Eve. And she was 29. And, uh, she was 28 at the time. Yeah. And then, yeah, she was 29 by, by the time of her funeral. And um, 
I think of it as patient abandonment. You know, we've just abandoned these people. They become hard to deal with. They're so driven by this drug. And what Tess said to me, the first time I interviewed her in late 2015, she described how she had initially been uh, addicted by uh, at an urgent care center with two 30-day opioid prescriptions. And she said, what we need, and she was kind of being ironic, she said, what we need is an urgent care for the addicted. And so that's the message I'm trying to carry forward with this book. We need to make these medications, these life-saving medications that Tess herself couldn't get, that uh, Don Flattery's son um, lost his access to. We need to make them available the way we made HIV medications available in uh, a low threshold setting where everybody who needed to get it had access, just the way everybody who needs to get heroin has access, right? We need to make these these MAT drugs as accessible as the street drugs are because they're really, uh, they really work when they're used correctly. You, um, you it's not a quick fix. Go ahead. Sorry. I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I, I said in your book, to your point that they work, you compared the, uh, the uh, relapse rate and the recovery, you know, sustainable recovery rate, and they're pretty dramatic differences when you're on MAT versus cold turkey not being on anything. Yeah. Could you? Yeah, 50 to 60% with MAT versus about 10% on abstinence only. Yeah, 60 and, versus 10. But so 10. many of these kids, yeah, so many of these kids uh, have seen one or two of their friends succeed in rehab, and then they also have been, you know, they've been in the NA meetings where they've been felt to be unclean. I watched tests. Uh, go to NA meetings and ask to be sponsored, and no one would sponsor her because they deemed her unclean because she was taking Suboxone or buprenorphine. And um, so she herself believed this notion that going away out of state to an abstinence-only facility was the only way for her to get clean. She knew she had a friend for whom it had worked, and that friend uh, and his brother had both been heroin addicts from a wealthy family, and their parents spent $300,000 on multiple rehabs that lasted months at a time. And that's just not something that's, it did work for those two young men and I'm, I'm happy for them, but it's not something that is scalable uh, at an epidemic of this size. And it didn't work for tests. Tests, to, you know, so many of these people don't have this kind of data available to them. And so that's why we need informed consent for people to know, yeah, you can go and you can spend this money, but chances are, you know, only 10% get better um, using that model. 50 to 60% get better using this model. So um, I guess uh, it doesn't leave us feeling very hopeful. Uh, we've got this mm -hmm. massive crisis uh, that has exponentially grown, almost seemingly overnight. Um, we have uh, a lot of the establishment, medical establishment and government, almost indifferent or or complicit in this crisis. Uh, we have communities being overwhelmed. I mean, the communities you describe in your book, they don't have huge resources to combat this threat. Uh, and, uh, and so they're almost ripe for the picking by drug dealers coming down from, say, Baltimore or Philadelphia, New York, uh, and, uh, and they're finding a ready market 
And then even if somebody is motivated to try to cure themselves of this addiction, frankly, the options are so limited and not necessarily science-based, as you're pointing out in terms of MAT versus non-MAT treatment. Um, uh, is there any hope at all for these families? Uh, what can yes. they turn to? What can they do? Yes. Well, I mean, I, I mentioned earlier the three states in New England that are starting to see their overdose deaths go down, and that's because they've offered harm reduction facilities in the form of syringe exchange and recovery programs, and these are places where users can go trade in dirty needles for clean ones to stop the spread of HIV and hepatitis C, which is skyrocketing, by the way, hepatitis C. And they can hopefully once, I mean, a lot of these people are leaving homeless, prostituting to get their drugs. And once they make a relationship with somebody, a nice social worker type person that's working in these syringe exchange programs, then they can start to give them the informed consent. They can start to make the the referrals to treatment, to medication-assisted treatment. And you see this happening in these New England states, and it's working. So we need to have those available everywhere. We still have 17 states that haven't passed the Medicaid expansion, and that has proved to be the number one tool for getting people access to buprenorphine. Uh, 70% increase in, in the states with uh, who have expanded Medicaid. Uh, and, but we still have only one in 10 people with opioid use disorder getting access to MAT. Um, we know this works. There's still a huge amount of stigma to overcome. And, and I've seen in the areas that have started to lead these kind of progressive harm reduction facilities, whether it be in rural uh, Johnson City, Tennessee, where they opened a methadone and treatment facility that also had alternative therapies and nobody in the community wanted to have it, you know, not in my backyard kind of thing. And they just, these group of uh, practitioners and public health experts, faith-based communities, they, the communities need to get organized and start these collaborations where they're working uh, outside of their silos with law enforcement, uh, using the best practices to open clinics. But it takes a willingness to go out there and tell the story and to, to, to show the data, to show that treatment can work, and to convince people that, um, as, as, as one of the doctors says that's trying to convince this community in Gray, Tennessee to open this methadone clinic, some lady shouts at him, how many chances are we supposed to give these drug addicts? You know, we bring them back with Narcan, then we have to go Narcan them again, and it's sucking the taxpayers dry. And the doctor says, uh, he thinks of what the disciples said to Jesus, how, how many times should a sinner be forgiven? Should he be forgiven 70 times or seven? And the doctor says to the woman, 70 times seven, like as many times as it takes. Are we going to just relegate this many people to death when there is a pretty good treatment for them? Um, we're going to be paying for them if they get hepatitis C one way or other. Why don't we help them get ways to prevent them from getting it now, which will be cheaper in the long run? Yeah. Well, and I was really struck by... Uh, Medicaid expansion is, I mean, this is a very expensive thing. To try to treat this very expensive. is very expensive. And, uh, you know, and a lot of people simply don't get treatment uh, because they know they can't afford it. They can't afford the doctor's visit. They can't afford the medication uh, to try to offset uh, the addictive power of the opioids or the heroin addiction. They can't afford the rehab 
uh, which is often, uh, you know, going to a facility for weeks at a time. Uh, and so they forego it because they can't afford it. Medicaid allows them to have access to those treatments. Uh, and in that sense, as you said, is a lifesaver. Um, and, uh, yes. But when you're writing this book, you're writing it about Virginia. Virginia has not yet expanded Medicaid. In fact, it's rural legislators, often conservative Republican legislators, who resist the very expansion of Medicaid that would save their constituents' lives. Can you talk about that? That's what's, right. what's the nature of this political resistance when they can see in front of themselves the nature of the crisis their community is facing? Yeah, I wish I understood that better myself. Virginia did just pass the Medicaid yes. expansion. It is it's, It will trickle down soon, and it was, I believe, the 33rd state. Uh, I see a lot of resistance in rural areas, such as what I was speaking about with Johnson City, Tennessee earlier. Uh, they've been living with this crisis longer than the rest of us, largely. Uh, they've seen a lot of the law enforcement is uh, largely uh, against MAT because they've seen it diverted and uh, abused. And they've seen, uh, as I, I'm, in, I'm in a little debate with a friend of mine who's a rural judge and says, he said, Beth, I read your book. I loved it. I don't, he said, I'm one of those climate change deniers that you talk about. I won't allow my probationers to be on MAT because every time I do, and he has, you know, granted the worst cases, uh, people, many repeats coming back. When I, he said they, they sell their Suboxone to buy methamphetamine. And I said, Judge, with all due respect, you're only seeing the people for whom it doesn't work. So there's this huge observation bias at work uh, in this, uh, it's, it leads to this misperception that the drug is bad when in fact they're not seeing the people who are getting their kids back, like Dr. Van Z's patients who are on Suboxone, some of them for eight, nine, 10 years now. Uh, and they're still taking Suboxone and that's okay because they're getting their kids back, they're getting their jobs back. One woman I interviewed is now off disability, almost unheard of, right? Somebody willingly getting off disability. She got, she got an advanced degree. She's doing really well. Um, but she doesn't want to, I mean, she let me interview her, but she didn't want me to use her name because living in this little rural community that she lives in, she still feels like people will uh, uh, discriminate against her because she's substituting one drug for another. And so we've just got to get out and we've got to do what those people in gray did. We've got to be willing to, you know, kind of get our butts kicked telling this story that treatment works um, when it's done correctly, it works, um, it saves lives, it's our best shot for getting, for turning this um, crisis back. Yeah, and I think, uh, I think there's almost, uh, you know, the woman you cited, you know, how many times are we supposed to be helping uh, these drug addicts? I, I think there's, uh, there's still enormous education, both in the medical profession and the law enforcement and the public at large about the nature of this addiction. This is a long-term challenge for the individual who's addicted and their families and their communities. And there are gonna be steps forward and steps backward. And, and our goal That's is right. to get them on a long-term path for recovery, but they're always at risk, aren't they, once they develop this addiction? Yeah, I mean, this this number kind of stood the hair up on the back of my neck. John Kelly at Harvard Research uh, Psychiatrist says it takes the average heroin addicted person 
eight years and four to five treatment attempts just to get one year of sobriety. Wow. And that's a pretty grim number, but it shows you that, uh, you know, often people that start Suboxone don't stay on it or then they go to heroin and then come back to Suboxone. But we just got to keep making it almost like uh, treatment on demand and not abandoning them. I saw a lot of people, they would go back for Suboxone, they would do a go back to their doctor, they would, uh, you know, test positive for marijuana, and then they would cut them off as punishment instead of go, oh, well, maybe they needed a bigger dosage because they were still feeling these cravings. Yeah. And uh, we, we've just got a lot more education to do. You're right about that. Um, you know, you profile a couple of characters uh, in this book, uh, and uh, you mentioned Tess, and I'd like you to talk a little bit more about her. But before I do, uh, talk about Ronnie Jones. Ronnie Jones is somebody mm -hmm. who is pushing drugs and mm -hmm. doesn't himself get addicted and ends up in jail, and you interview him. Could you talk a little bit about who is he and what were you struck by in terms of his reaction to the mayhem and terrible suffering he was a vehicle for. Mm -hmm. um, so th I, the book begins with me driving to visit him at a federal prison um, in West Virginia. And I'm being, sent, I'm being sent there at the request of a mother who's lost her son to heroin uh, overdose, uh, partly spawned by Ronnie's bringing in heroin in bulk from Harlem to this tiny farm town, Woodstock, which is not too far from where you live. Um, and uh, almost overnight, according to the police and prosecutors, this town went from having a handful of known heroin users to hundreds. And because of Ronnie, uh, according to uh, the police and the people who put him uh, behind bars. And so I, the mother asked me to find out why this happened and she thought it was only pills how did how did it happen that her burly beautiful 19 year old construction worker who never missed a day of work ended up dead on somebody else's bathroom floor and so i started pulling the threads interviewing different people involved in jones's ring and end up getting an interview with jones himself and i want to hear what his story is and you know his story is basically he grew up in alexandria uh, from a nice family and uh had you know, had issues, got arrested early on. He says he was profiled, pulled over. And once he had that felony on his record, it was really hard for him to get work. So that each time he came out of jail, he would try to get work and he would come out with child support arrears, with fines, you know, not being able to get food stamps. And the only way, thing that he felt was available to him was drug dealing. And so when he comes out the second time, so he remembers he's been sent to work in this chicken plant in, in outside of Woodstock called George's Chicken um, to serve out the last bit of his sentence. And when he uh, finishes that, or rather he loses the job after get, getting sick, he remembers that in the break room, everybody's using pills. This is in 2013. And uh, a friend had said, if you want to deal drugs this time, you start bringing heroin in uh, because you'll make a lot of money on it. And... Um, you know, he told me he knew he was eventually going to get caught. Uh, he started bringing in, he was making thousands a day on this drug. So uh, just an incredible amount of money. And um, so he and 83 others were, were busted in the state and federal charges and were sent to jail. Some people, some of the lower level people in his ring 
died of overdose. Many of them were user dealers. So when you hear, you know, politicians say things like we should be executing drug dealers, a lot of these drug dealers are people like Tess uh, and other people that I write about in the book who are middlemanning and selling to support their own habits. Right. They're, they're not your typical criminal uh, drug dealer image. They're, these are users who resort to dealing drugs to, to finance their own habit. Right. The other thing you mentioned, I mean, it, it, it struck me that uh, Ronnie Jones felt he had no options because because of his uh, prison record, he was unemployable in a lot of places. People wouldn't turn to someone like that to hire. So he ends up in this chicken plant, and I think you say in the book, where he's pulling in three or $400 a week. Right, At working for the chicken plant. Working for the chicken yeah. place. And it's not where, enough for him to... To pay off his bills and debts and meet his child support and all that. But meanwhile, he can make tens of thousands of dollars selling heroin every week. Yeah, in a weekend. Yeah, yeah, in a weekend. And so that's kind and, of, for uh, him, a no-brainer. You know, no -brainer. he justifies it. He justifies it. He says, I'm bringing in clean heroin. This was before fentanyl. And I'm saving people in Woodstock the, you know, the danger of driving an hour and a half to Balt inner city Baltimore where they were going to get it. I'm bringing it to them. I'm selling it to them at a slightly cheaper price. They're not having to endanger themselves by going into inner city neighborhoods. And, um, you know, he felt almost like he was doing a, a service. And, um, you know, he justified his, um, you know, he took no responsibility. Uh, well, he did actually take some responsibility. I, I read to him some parts of the book and, you know, he said, you know, that did make him feel bad. But when I asked him about Jesse Bolstridge, I mean, he didn't even know his name. Yeah. And that's was, the young man who it died. Was a long, yeah. Because it was many steps removed from where the needle hits the vein from where Ronnie was packaging his heroin. Mm -hmm. Just as Purdue can say, you know, we took responsibility for, for uh, uh, you know, in that 2007 yeah. um, plea agreement and um, but you know we're not the ones responsible for the heroin epidemic and there's there's many steps but it all began with them um, sort of deluging communities across America with this drug and this idea that it was safe based on bad data and lies. Beth uh, we're gonna have to uh, wrap up now but I gotta tell you Thank you for writing this book. I hope it saves lives. I also hope it opens. Oh, thank you so much. I hope it also opens a lot of eyes in the policy world, the law enforcement world, the medical world, that we must tackle this problem. These are our children, and we cannot abandon them. Thank you so thank much. Thank you so much for your interest in the great interview. I appreciate it. Thank you, Beth.